Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. This is Ben Adelberg, your host, and this is episode 125. Hope everyone's week is going as best as possible. Looks like some movement with the stimulus package and stock markets up today. Of course, that could all change. I have no intellect with the market whatsoever, so we're just going to change course right now. Remember, um, posting on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, the handle is the Back of the Range Podcast. Trying to get rid of some towels, trying to do some giveaways, uh, just trying to interact. Let me know what you guys think of the episodes this week. We are going to do an episode each and every day this week. Uh, Just got a couple more to close the week out. Um, Not sure what we're doing about next week. We'll see. But uh, our guest on this episode is Brad Faxon. Oh, where do you start? 1983 U.S. Walker Cup team. Yeah, Jay Sigal is his captain. Jay was a previous guest here at the back of the range. Played professionally on the PGA Tour. Won numerous events. Won on the Champions Tour. Played on two Ryder Cup teams. We talked about that. He does TV work for Fox. And there are players coming to him all the time asking for help on their putting. And why wouldn't you? One of the best putters of all time. Uh, He's working with Rory McIlroy, working with Gary Woodland, Brandon Grace. So Fax is into a lot of things. And we had a great conversation. Went about 90 minutes. So lots of fun. Lots of great stories. And there's a story at the end of this episode that is absolutely epic. I mean, it has to do with Arnold Palmer. So you know it's going to be awesome. Let me know again what you think about the episodes. Do you have any suggestions? Man, I'm, I'm... I'm open to just about anything. We're going to keep doing some college episodes. I know they had their season ended, but there's some great stories out there with some players and coaches. I am going to finish up the Road to Augusta series. You know, we had Abel Gallegos on. The rest of the amateurs, they are coming as well. So lots of great stuff coming. We're going to get through this together. So let's get to this episode right now. Brad Faxon, welcome to the back of the range. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, like like we said, Ben, it's it's trying to figure out things to do in this environment. Uh, I mean, I mean we, we use the word unprecedented too much because there's no other word to describe what we're all going through and trying to make the, the best of times with the virus um, kind of sneaking into the country and now uh, you know, wiping out almost half the stock market, it looks like. All right, all right. This is this is a Friday afternoon. It's, well, I'm letting listeners know when we record, just because of how quickly things change. So it's Friday. It's March 20th, and uh, let's not let's not depress the listeners or myself by talking about the stock market. Um, yeah, forget it. Yeah, yeah. Let's not let's go to happier direction. But um, I, I appreciate you doing this. And yeah, I mean, what are you trying to do to keep sane? I mean, are you venturing out to? I mean, are you walking nine holes? Are you? Are, what are? What do you do to stay sane? Well, that's that's a good question. Uh, we got home Monday from uh, a two-week trip in New Zealand. Uh, we had planned, you know, as, as you would expect, months and months ago uh, with some good friends uh, um, that, that live in Santa Monica. And we, we were there as tourists exploring, um, bungee jumping, doing some rides over some mountains, some trails. Um, we helicoptered. We ate good food and drank some New Zealand wine, and then we played some golf. And uh, one of the places we played was a new course called Tarahiti that uh, Tom Doak designed. Uh, a developer named Rick Kane, an American from Los Angeles, uh, 
built this place started about four or five years ago and it's sensational. So we, we were avoiding uh, all the news in the U S about the virus and, and the scares, but we were also nervous when president Trump made this announcement that he wasn't going to let Europeans fly into the country. And here yeah. we are in New Zealand, halfway around the world, like, Oh, do we need to get back? And thankfully it was only a couple of days later. And we got back on Monday through, uh, Los Angeles. It was the first time in my life. And, you know, probably as flown as most people have ever flown uh, and saw two airports, LAX and Fort Lauderdale, that were virtual ghost towns. Unreal. Yeah, that had, I, I don't think I could ever imagine seeing Fort Lauderdale Airport um, empty. <laughs> and that's, that can't, you know, there's a point where you're like, wow, airport isn't too crowded. This is great. And then there's that other point where you're like, okay, this isn't good. I need, this airport is uh, way too quiet. Um well, I'm glad you got back safe. And yeah, I saw I saw a video of you bungee jumping, and I don't I hope you don't take this the wrong way. But when I think of uh, PGA Tour players, uh, that would be bungee jumping. I'm thinking of like a Ricky Fowler. I'm thinking of a Brooks Kepka. Brad Faxon is not the name that really comes to the top of the list. How did that How did that happen? Did you uh, too much New Zealand wine, or or, how, or was it a bet? How'd that happen? Well, wait a minute. Should I be insulted by that question, Ben? Um, I mean, I, I you, you you can be. I mean, I, I hope not, but I'm just I'm just letting you know. When I think of Daredevil PGA Tour players, I'm just being honest. Brad Faxon is not at the top of the list. Okay, well, let's see. I, I have I don't know if I have a crutch for speed. I like to drive fast. Okay. Um, I don't mind I don't mind roller coasters. Um, I'm not afraid of heights. I'm not claustrophobic. Um, but you know, jumping 150 feet that's not something I had a high on a bucket list. I, I have a good friend of mine that went over with his family a few years ago and did two different bungee jumps, one in Zimbabwe, I think, or, or Tanzania, and one, uh, the one I went to in <laughs> just outside of Queenstown. And I said, okay, if he could do it, I could do it. He He's kind of my age, and he has four daughters. I have four daughters. And <laughs> then uh, the couple that we were going with, she had done it. My buddy's wife had done it the last time they were over there and she was encouraging me to do it. And then, um, three guys that I knew who took their wives over a couple of years ago that are all older than me. They're all golf nuts. They're all members of a famous club where they have a famous tournament in April and they all jumped. Now, they might've been Chardonnay induced, uh, but I, uh, I, I, I had a buddy of mine with me that we, we played golf in the morning at a great place called Jack's Point. Went over to meet our wives at the place. I, I did do one shot of tequila, but not enough to worry about anything. And um, <laughs> um, watched a line of people, you know, get suited up to go. And then they have a picture on the desk when you're there taking, getting your weight and paying uh, of a woman that was 91 years old and oh. she bungeed. Oh, so that's just flip, that's just flipping you off. That's just like, yeah, what, you got to do it if you see that picture. I know, so. So, and she had a big smile on her face right as she's standing on the ledge. But, um, you know, when they're wrapping this thing around you and you got this harness around kind of your waist and your crotch area, you, you feel pretty secure uh, knowing that there's going to be, you know, I, I've never been a skydiver. I've never jumped out of an airplane. I don't know if I'd do that, but um, this would make me think that I could do this again. Uh, the, you're you're free falling for maybe two or three seconds, 140 feet, and then I guess the most fun part about it is the rebound, the recoil. When you get down, and your fingers are inches away from the water, 
and you go zipping back up the elasticity of the bungee um, pulls you back up maybe two thirds of the way. And now you're totally out of control. You don't know which end is up or which end is down. And um, you're swinging around in this rope, um, you know, kind of felt like Tarzan. Yeah. I've, I've seen plenty of videos of that and uh, I'm glad you did it. Glad you're safe. Um, But yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know if that's, uh, that's not up my speed, but, uh, but glad, glad you did that. And we're going to, we're, we're going to tackle a lot of topics that maybe after we get done telling some stories, we'll say, well, that, that is something that Brad Faxon would do. So, so we'll have to see what, um, I want to ask about, you know, obviously multiple time PGA tour winner, you know, multiple Ryder cup appearances, and we'll get into that, but I, I want to ask you just before we get off this topic of coronavirus, the thing I want to ask you is that, you know, there's a lot of people that are, um, you know, we see uh, celebrities and we see uh, athletes from different sports that are unfortunately getting this thing. It looks like it's inevitable for a lot of people um, in the country. And at some point, I know there was a PJ Tour Latin America player that did contract coronavirus and it seems at some point i'd love to be proven wrong but it seems at some point that we're going to see a high profile player on the pga tour that is going to contract coronavirus and i'm just wondering how how should in your eyes how should we proceed with this as far as whether it's perception on social media or announcements in the mainstream media how do we move forward once we see someone that is on the pga tour uh, you know, how should they communicate the coronavirus to their following, to their fans, to golf fans worldwide? It seems like there's already a bunch of athletes and namely a, a bunch of NBA players that have, have gotten the uh, the virus and they come public with it. it. You know, all the data that is out there, if it's reliable, some of it is, some of it isn't. It seems like uh, it says 60% of the U.S. population is going to get the virus yeah. for, uh, you know, somebody's going to get it that's a PGA Tour player. Uh, it might be a big-name player. You, you can be as careful as you want to be, I think, in this situation and still get it. You can be unlucky and, and get this virus. Look at Tom Hanks. He was down in Australia with his yeah. wife um, when he got it. He posted some pretty cool videos about what it was like going through it. Um, I know there's a couple strains of this virus. I know that um, you can sometimes have the virus, but don't show any signs or symptoms for a while. So, uh, I still think there's a long way to get out of this hole, but I think that also this summer, as the summer approaches and the weather gets better, um, the virus doesn't thrive in hot weather as well as it does in the cold weather. And most of the virus now is in the colder climates. And, and hopefully we figure out a way, um, to keep everybody inside. I think these next couple of weeks are crucial. Definitely. You know, a lot of what people are doing right now, if they do get out on the golf course, they're not using golf carts. They're carrying their bag or they're, there's different things, you know, not touching the flag, not touching, uh, not going in a clubhouse. But I thought of this question, what's the most memorable round of golf that you've ever played carrying your bag? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, most memorable carrying my bag. Well, when I was young, I played a lot carrying my own bag and practicing with three different balls and on my own course, you know, whether it was Rhode Island country club back in Rhode Island as a kid. And certainly we played in college, carrying your own bag, all your amateur golf yeah. um, playing. So down here in Florida, that's almost unheard of. I know. Carrying your own bag. The, the place where I live, a, a nice community called old Palm golf club. Everybody has their own cart. 
And um, the rule now is if you're going to play, and I played yesterday with my wife and another couple, is you can play with your cart. You can't share a cart with anyone unless it's family. So I'm like, okay, I can can handle that. And we had a great time, actually, um, out there. You know, you stay you know, cautious, far away flag sticks are in. We had uh, our club started a little trend down here that a couple clubs did where they pulled the cup, you know, an inch out of the hole. So you could putt at this, you know, at the liner, right. Um, which, which really to me wasn't golf. It was like, you could smack it as hard as you want. And you know, the, the temporary rule was, Hey, if it hits any part of the liner, it counts. I'm like, well, wait a minute. That's yeah. not a skill. You can just swing as hard as you want. Yeah. And then Gil Hans has a, um, architect partner Jim, Jim Wagner and Wagner said he heard of a cool workaround that they found that if you get one of those noodles for a swimming pool you know those long yeah. styrofoam things and, and they have a hole in the middle of them yeah you can cut maybe a three or four inch deep piece wrap it around the bottom of the flag stick so the ball will actually go into the hole but only half the ball uh, goes into you know, right. falls. Right. So you can pick it out with two fingers without touching the flag stick. And the, the, today was the first day we did it at my club at Old Palm. And the players all thought it was better, you know, especially the better players that, that are playing, you know, want to go play a match or maybe turn in a score. Um, so I, I saw that winged foot, they have a similar styrofoam piece that goes into the hole and allows players to actually putt. So, I was pretty excited to hear that. It, it, it you know, office. It seems like it's one of the few um, safe places where you can kind of congregate, not get too close, and not spread the virus around. And you know, in the wake of all these cities and, and states closing restaurants, hotels, uh, the clubhouses, even Seminole closed down today, and they're only allowing walking. So. Um, I'm not a member at Seminole, and I'm sure that would be a place where I'd go. And, and I know my producer at Fox, Mark Loomis, and his son are going over there today. They're carrying bags and, I mean, talk about something pretty good. That's not a bad place to, to get an evening nine in. That's not too bad. So. No, that would be nice. I, if you were down here, we could go do that. I, I'll, I'll be right up. I mean, we got to see if they'll let us in. But uh, probably, <laughs> you'd have better luck than I would. But we um, a lot of what we talk about here at Back of the Range is a lot about amateur golf a lot about college golf and you know in 83 you played walker cup at royal liverpool i was just there last year for the for the latest edition of the walker cup and you know you you played your golf you know at Furman and had this phenomenal collegiate career when did it become um, evident that that was going to be in your future playing on that team in 83 so i was a late bloomer as a golfer growing up in rhode island i I, I never skyrocketed. I, I just kind of got steadily, I steadily improved. I didn't get a big scholarship to play college golf um, until after I had committed to go to Furman, where I ended up graduating from and very happy that I went there. Uh, I got to play on the team right away. I might not have if I went to a good school. And when I got to Furman, then there were a few players that had been there before me that that had made some one of the All-American teams. They were first, second, third, and honorable mention teams, and they had these sort of wooden plaques uh, up on the wall for a guy named David Strawn or Kenny Zell. And I remember seeing those, and I'd I'd looked, I studied the the years of these players, and um, 
it, it seemed to me that if there were players that were on the first or second team, all Americans, they all made it to the PGA tour. They all had good amateur careers outside of college where they, they might've played in a U.S. amateur or played well in the, um, you know, the bigger tournaments and had a chance to make Walker cup. So, in 1982, I made first team All-American my junior year at Furman. I uh, got my name on one of those plaques where I'm like, oh, shh, this is what I wanted to be. And, um, you know, I got ranked in college. They didn't do it anywhere near as uh, detailed as, as now. But my senior year, I, I had a, a great senior year in college, won the Haskins Award, which was, you know, that kind of was the college equivalent in golf for the Heisman. Right. Uh, I'm actually lo- looking at the trophy right now. So that was kind of neat. And that helped for me to make that, that Walker cup team in the first time for me to play in the UK, play links golf and to, to um, represent my country. And when you play this, you, you know, you play on this team and, you know, like right now, pretty much, at least it's been this way for, for quite some time, probably the last 10, 20 years, you know, there'll be a mid-am there, you know, as, as you know, whether it's a Stuart Hagestad or it's a Trip Keeney or a Mike McCoy, but it's mainly college, college kids that are destined to at least make a run at playing on the PGA Tour. But yep. back in 83, you still had a, you know, collection of these mid-ams and, you know, some pretty big names. You got Holt Grieve and Lewis, and then obviously Jay Sigel, who is, I mean, he is the, all-time uh, winningest uh, Walker Cup on the U.S. side, and I think he played 15 or 17 straight years of Walker Cups. He was your playing captain. What was it like being that young and just you got these grown men on this team? I know. It was very different now, Ben, because for Fox, we covered the, the Walker Cup at U, uh, LACC. L- yeah, LACC. Two, uh, you 17. Know, two years ago. Yeah. And um, Stuart Hagestad was the old man at, at 27, I think he was. And we had, I think on my team, three or four guys over 40. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's really, really different. Um, and, you know, we had a couple college kids from University of uh, Houston on the team. Uh, Dave Tentis, you know, Rick Fair was on the team, Willie Wood, Nathaniel Crosby, who's yeah. the back-to-back captain now. Um, so, I'll tell you what, it was was one of the most fun things I've ever had in my life. You know, playing amateur golf was awesome. Playing over there in Scotland and Link, sorry, England and Link's golf, Liverpool, of course, that really wasn't a heralded golf course. I mean, they had had before that the 67 U.S. Open, Di Vincenzo won. Um, So not many Americans knew Royal Liverpool or Hoylake, as the locals called it. Yeah. And, it was cold. It was May. It was typical of what you would see. And it was so fun. And we, I don't know, Willie Wood and I were, the, were we were friends. We were buddies. We were the, um, the first place team. And I guess the, the best part of this Walker Cup was Jay Siegel, our captain, playing captain, um, put us out first in the first match, the alternate shot on Saturday morning. And we had practiced all week long. Uh, Willie was going to hit off the odd holes. I was going to hit off the evens. And, you know, we were both really good short game players um, and particularly good putter Willie for sure. And he was getting ready to hit his tee shot on the first hole. They announced, um, 
you know, we were the first to play from the United States of America, first to play Willie Wood, and it was cold, it was windy, it was a big crowd, there was a very, very polite and long applause, and Willie got up over this tee shot, um, and didn't look comfortable, stepped away, got up over it again, stepped away, came back to me, whispered it in my ear, he goes, I can't hit it, you have to hit it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was an oh my God moment, and I go, what are you talking about? He goes, I'm too nervous, you have to do it. And it was, it was, you know, throw away the playbook. I hadn't thought about that happening. I hadn't really practiced in my mind hitting a tee shot on this first hole. Which and, is which is not an easy first hole. I can say, I mean, you know it better than I no. do, but I was there. I actually got to play the course the day after last year at the Walker Cup. And that first hole is, when you say a dogleg right, it is almost a straight right angle to the right. And everything on the right is OB. Yeah, they have this small burn that can't even be two feet high. Right. Uh, and it's it's got a, like a little, what would you call it, on the top of it, a little... It's it's like a, it's almost just like this railing or like a speed bump that just runs the whole like way down. It's like a big speed bump with some kind of scooped out something on the top of it, and you're like, this is out of bounds. And it would be easy to hit a great drive that went out of bounds and... The, you know, to compound it, the pressure of being uh, the first group, the pressure of playing Walker Cup, the pressure of having a partner, the pressure of playing when your partner says, I can't do it. Um, and then now the silence and the whispers and uh, having to pull the driver, the head cover, and get, a, and get a ball, you know, all that, the extra time. I I remember, and the wind blowing left to right, I was cutting it at the time. Oh, I remember <laughs> this was an awful moment. I, I I don't know if you remember on the left side there was you know there's some buildings over there, yeah, the clubhouse, yeah. and there was a big there was a big clock. Yeah, and I, I think I was aiming at the clock. I was aiming so far left, and um, I aimed left and I cut it, and it still ended up in the left rough. That's how far I was aiming. But we we won the first five holes of a match. Uh, I think we were four or five under for those five holes. I'm thinking this is going to be a piece of cake. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, you're up. Five. I'm sorry. Good, good. I was just going to say, then we lost the next four holes. So we played the first nine without, Without having a well, you got you guys won the match uh, uh, three and one. But see, I I kind of knew that story where and and when you said like you know Willie and I are friends, I was going to jump in and say, are are you still friends after what he pulled, <laughs> after he <laughs> yeah. kind of left yeah. you hanging out to dry? I didn't know he actually teed it up and and stood over it twice. I didn't know that story because that's that's really awkward. Uh, it's it was really awkward and. and Willie's one of my long time and close friends and he thinks I kind of fudge in the story a little too much and maybe, you know, okay. <laughs> just a little bit. but you know, it, it makes the story just a little bit better. Yeah. We don't need, all, we don't it, need all facts. I don't need all facts here. I mean, there's no fact checker. Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. Not, but I, it's close to true enough. Let me tell you. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so, you, but, but yeah, and I, I just looking at that team. So, um, most intimidating guy on your team, that '83 Walker Cup team, as a young guy coming in. I know, I know that Crosby was younger than is younger, and you got a bunch of. Young, but who is the guy on that team that you're like, man, I don't want to let uh, this guy. I don't want to let this guy down. Yeah, it was definitely Jay Siegel. Okay. Uh, he he had a, a an impeccable amateur record, uh, and he also played a lot at Juan Moisa Country Club in the Northeast Amateur, which yeah. was where I, close to where I grew up. 
a tournament I always wanted to get into. One of the first tournaments I ever went and watched as just a spectator. And uh, I think Siegel, uh, amateur golf then, there were more career amateurs uh, yeah. that followed in, say, the footsteps of Bobby Jones. And Siegel was a, a, a man that had done well off the golf course professionally uh, in insurance business um, and really went to the office, wasn't somebody that, um, you know, I don't respect Stuart Hagestad, but I still think he's a, more like a professional amateur. Um, he will enjoy hearing that because he listens to this podcast, so I will leave that in the episode. So, Stu, you heard yep, that. Yep. You heard what Faxon just said about you. Yeah, uh, I'll be expecting a phone call. But he, <laughs> um, so Siegel was also a guy that um, he, he, he received an honorary membership from Juana Moisit, which was a club back then that didn't do stuff like that very often. And for me to see a, someone like that receive an honorary membership, I'm like, boy, is that cool? Yeah. Um, it would be neat to be in that category where you have that much respect um, from someone. So I, I thought that was something. And, and when I, my, one of my highlights as an amateur was I won the Sunnyham Amateur Championship yeah. in, I'm going to say, 1982 and it had to be 82 because I turned pro in the summer of 83. So I it was 82. I was you, you are correct yeah. in your, in, in Brad facts and history and Brad facts and trivia. You are correct, sir. Okay. So I was playing that final round with Siegel and you know, he was a Pennsylvania guy we were in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and he would have been the most well-known guy. Nobody knew who I was from Rhode Island. And, um, I, Remember on one of the holes, um, I was standing to the side of the tee. He was getting ready to hit. He was getting ready to hit his tee shot. And I must have distracted him, and he stepped away, and he goes, hey, can you move over a little bit? And he said it very nicely. But it was one of those that it, it was intimidating because I think back then I would have just let myself stay distracted and made a swing and probably hit a crappy shot and not blamed it on anybody but myself. But when he... He he asked me to move out of the way, and that intimidated me. I don't know why, but it just kind of bugged me. And, you know, he was probably 15, 20 years older than I was. I'm guessing that's, yeah. that's probably, probably right. about 40 yeah. years old, something like that. And you're like, yeah. yeah. So I was like, oh, man, oh, man. <laughs> it is kind of also uh, interesting how a 40-year-old is a, play, is a playing captain. I mean, think about that. Right now, the, the trend is for the – captains of the walker cup team to be um it's it looks like it's more of an honorary thing from past accomplishments a lot of guys in their 60s and and uh you know maybe late 50s but uh that's just a very unique thing in and of itself well and, and you know I, I think how that's transpired really is because if you you think about it nowadays everybody turns professional right there's very few buddy maruchis and Nathaniel crosby's left and and these captains like Spider Miller, uh, they get that captaincy now for two years. Yeah. Um, so it's it's very different world as as we know it in in the game where players now the best players in the world are all college players, the best amateur golfers, and uh, in, in the U.S. amateur, um, we we didn't want you know back then there was no such thing as the U.S. mid amateur. We right. didn't have that event. Yeah, that was eighty one. And and, and and yeah, that so that's kind of sprung from. You know, the, the game changing with college players becoming more dominant. And really, it would, if, if you went back, it would probably be from right around then is when the AJGA started. 
where there was more of a tournament schedule for junior golfers, so they they were playing as much golf as a tour player, weren't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, let me ask you this. You know, you turn pro, you get onto the tour, and you were in that era where, um, you know, Q School was still a thing that uh, you played, and, and, and it got you a ticket to the PGA Tour, and, and you went to Q School one time in 83, right after Walker Cup, and of all places, it's at TPC Sawgrass, which I still think is just so hysterical that this is a golf course that is going to determine your livelihood, and it has, uh, uh, you know, has just all these pitfalls of this die design that's just got to be absolutely brutal. Um, you get through, Paven gets through, Mark Brooks, Sindelar, a lot of these guys that were uh, the stars of the 80s and the 90s. Do you remember any sort of a 17th hole heartbreak at that Q school? Well, yes, but not for me. Um, right. No, I know and, you got through. I think you, I think you got through. I mean, I know you had the issue where that that fifth round was wiped out because of rain, and then but yeah, that great sixth round. I think you shot like seventy or seventy one. So I know you got through pretty comfortably. I don't have it in front of me exactly where you were, but I know you. I know you weren't on the line. Yeah, I don't know if I was ever comfortable at any shot the entire <laughs> week, and especially there where it was relatively new course that the. Uh, um, the course has been well softened, you know, by removal of some of the huge slopes and the greens, the tree on 18, the famous tree that hung over the middle of the fairway on, on 18, which was the hardest hole I'd ever seen um, to that point. And then the, the paranoia coming to 17. So I played with Paul Azinger. Um, I, I believe it was the cut round, you know, because it was a four round cut. He made a quadruple bogey seven. Oh. playing with me um, and we did to watch uh, balls go in the water. And I believe even back then that the 17th hole was redlined lateral hazard, uh, which was a word we could use back then when the rules were different. But right. you, if you had hit it over the back of the green, you got to drop it on the green and putt for a par anyway. Right. And, and I think, I think I remember Azinger missing uh, short, one ball and wide the other, uh, which was a tragic mistake. To right, make. right. Okay, interesting. And, yep, and um, that that was something I saw, and and that you mentioned it earlier. The one of the rounds we played, uh, we had some bad weather, and I, I finished with a. I think I believe it was the fourth round. I I shot seventy one and moved way up. I was moving way up because it was a windy, wet cold damp sort of day and they canceled that round and then subsequently canceled all the scores that were completed from that day because they they had you know such a big field they needed to get everybody back on the course and start them on different tees and i'm like no way so i think i went back out and shot 75 or 76 that fourth round and I made the cut, but it was a little bit of a, a struggle, and it knocked me back into the you know top fifty guys made it back right. then. And I I think it put me into the high thirties or low forties where I needed to play well on the weekend. And if, if when you go play Pete Dye's courses in stroke play, <laughs> yeah. uh, for a living, oh for a living, yeah, yeah, they're, they're well, right, and and it's not like. You're playing Stableford, you know. Right. <laughs> you you don't have that ability to, to play a mulligan with your buddies. Every hole, it seems like every hole at Sawgrass had the potential. 
even the shorter holes to, to make a double bogey because there was water everywhere. I'm just I'm just thinking that 17th hole. If I'm well inside the cut line and I, and that that back of that green's playing as a, as a lateral, man, I would just hit a five iron or just blast a five iron over it. I would not even get close. I just like make sure it covers ground so I can drop it on that island and just two putt for my bogey. And thank you very much. Yeah, and make sure you get a club that gets that's going to fly to the back of the green. If yeah. you're lucky enough that it landed on the green and rolled over, you still had a putt for a par. Even if I don't uh, land it, I just want to be able to have everyone in my group see that the ball crossed crossed land. Yep, and you just had to be careful that you didn't hit a little too solid or it went to the land on the other side of that pond. Oh, that's true. Okay, <laughs> forgot about that. That's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's probably about 25 yards between the back edge of the green and where the spectators would sit during the Players' Championship. And oh, that yeah. would have been... Oh man, I can't imagine what that would have felt like if you did that. Yeah, but that, um, that'd be bad. Wow, um, definitely would have been bad. Yes. But I so I had a caddy um, at the at the qualifying school. His name was Joe Grillo, Gypsy John Michael Grillo was his nickname. Okay. Um, and Gypsy caddied for years for Jim Simons, and I had I had met him um, when I played at Pleasant Valley, one of the, the local tournaments to New England a PGA tour event. I played with Jim Simons. I was still an amateur and I met Gypsy. I was playing with Ray Floyd and Jim Simons, which was a kind of a intimidating pairing. And, and Gypsy was really nice to me. And I had asked him if he would go through the Q school with me. And back then really, there was no such thing as good nutrition in, you know, on the golf course, you kind of ate what you wanted to eat. And at the turn, every time they had like a little snack laid out for the players and they had these kind of, butter biscuits called Lorna Dune. I don't know if you're, you're old enough to hear know what Lorna Dune was, but they were just kind of bland white crackers. They had a lot of sugar in them, and then they had milk. <laughs> and we would have oh, cookies God. and milk at the turn. And every round, I bogeyed the 10th hole after my milk and cookies. Of course. And, and yeah. So finally on on the final day, on the sixth round, we got to the turn, and he's, he's standing, not, he's blocking me. He says, you're not having a cookie you're not going to do this. And I think that final round, I shot one under par 71, maybe with two birdies and one bogey and one of the finest rounds I'd ever played in my life. And I have a buddy of mine that made it through that qualifying name, Jim Roy, his son, Kevin is on the corn ferry tour now. And we remember, you know, starting that week out playing practice rounds together, everybody's talking to each other, everybody's happy. And then once that first round started, it was like Nothing. heads down. Nobody smiled. Nobody talked to each other. It was amazing. It's so brutal. I wish they would have. I wish they would bring it back in some way. I don't know how they would do it. I know that that now there's Q School just takes you to the Corn Ferry Tour, but uh, it would be so great to have just something where these guys can come in and it's it's just it's for your card. And uh, no, no, no kidding. Um, that uh, <laughs> that that week and and. This, people wanted people like watching the the Q school, you know, yeah. watching it on TV, watching the these you know, a lot of times you'd have veterans that had played the tour that had an off year. You'd see some young stars that had to go through it that even though they had college careers still had to get their card and and but there was a chance a chance that chase for stardom that um here you go, here's your card and now uh you very rarely see a guy um, this seems like a good college player gets straight to the tour. Well, I can make the exception this year. We had an extraordinary amount of them with Matt Wolf and Morikawa and yeah, uh, Doc Redmond. Doc Redmond, but that's such an exception. Yeah, 
No, you're you're 100 right, and I mean, gosh, just the drama itself because it seems like, you know, when you watch golf on TV, and sometimes that's that's what's missing. You just don't see that there that it's means. I mean, I know there's a lot of money out there, and I know that there's points, there's FedEx comes FedEx Cup points, there's all that out there. But man, I'd love to see these guys just you know competing, knowing that this is for a job. This is just for livelihood. And you got to do it this week or else wait till next year. It was the ultimate of pressure. Um, I, I still think in my golfing career, uh, I don't remember as being as nervous as I, <clears throat> as I was that week. And, and maybe the, the best shot I can remember hitting in, in those, it was 90 holes because I played 18 holes. Yeah. It didn't count. Um, I got up on the 18th hole, the final round and I had parred 17 and I knew I could make a five, six, or seven. I could probably make a seven on the 18th hole, and still, you know, make this, make keep my card. I was in 11th, 12th, 13th place, something like that. Yeah. And I ripped a draw with my driver down the middle. Back in the day, with a wooden club, where that hole wasn't playing very short, no matter what the wind was doing. And I, I remember hitting a draw, aiming at that trunk of that tree, and just trying to draw it. And it was one of those as soon as it left a the face you picked up a tee because you knew you didn't have to watch it anymore. Yep. Well, it wasn't like you get many of those swings at that course. That's awesome. So, so you get on tour and you know, this, this fantastic career, multiple wins. And I guess the one thing I really wanted to ask is when I think of, um, you know, guys that are friends on tour, uh, you know, or, or names that kind of fit together, um, it's you and, and Billy Andre. And I'm wondering how much, having a close friend that grew up in the same area, how much that helped your career as opposed to just like, yeah, I see this guy at this tournament stop and at that tournament stop. And yeah, we'll play a practice round together here and there and go to dinner. But how much did it maybe help your career knowing you had a very close friend from your, the same area that you kind of grew up around to go through the same, uh, the same, you know, experiences with. It's, it's really remarkable. It's unique because Rhode Island is such a small state. Uh, and to have, you know, not only two players, Billy and myself, but Ed Quigley, Ed Quigley too, and yeah. Dana Quigley. And then we had a, a few other players like Pat Horgan and Pat Sheehan, and, uh, Jimmy Hallett, some guys that got out on the tour and played some pretty decent golf. But um, the I think what with, with Billy and I, because we were from two towns apart, uh, I was in Barrington, Billy was in Bristol, uh, but he was three years younger than I am. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to a Barrington public school. He was going to a, a, a kind of a private school called Providence Country Day in, in Providence. So that three years difference was a was a bigger difference back then when you were a kid. And because I was older, I had been playing. I had played better golf at an earlier age. You know, when I was fourteen, I won the state juniors. Billy was only eleven. And then as I got older, you know, he was starting to get more competitive, and. You know, I, we didn't hang around together because you didn't do that when you were three years apart at 15 years old. But we saw each other a lot. And then as we started traveling the amateur game, uh, and he got better as a junior quick, very quickly. And I think him seeing me play well and it's similar to me seeing Dana Quigley play well, it helped uh, our confidence, uh, each of our confidence. And then I went off to to college and he showed up at Wake Forest on an Arnold Palmer scholarship. I was at Furman and, 
you know, I had started playing well then, but it, as I said, my mine was more of a gradual ascent. His was kind of a, uh, you know, dynamic. It went, it went more stealth right up, you know, like, holy smokes. He, he won uh, national junior tournaments and played a lot around the country, played better than I did, was highly ranked, and then went to a better college. So it really wasn't like we were hanging out a lot until our amateur days. You know, we, we would try and travel a little bit together playing uh, our college days, playing some amateur golf together. And then I got out on the tour, his college career blossomed, and then and I think he missed his card his first year, played some more internationally, and then what's funny is, you know, we were both kind of learning the ropes, playing the tour in the mid-80s, early 90s, and he won before I did, and he won two tournaments in a row in 1991. He won the Kemper, the Kemper Open, in, you know, down in D.C., and then he won at Westchester. And I was like, man, how can this guy <laughs> win? And me, I can't win, and I know him as good as him. We've been playing together for this long, and... I ended up winning later that summer and he had, he was playing in the Buick open in, in Flint, Michigan and he and his wife were driving out of the course and, and listening on radio going to the airport. And they heard that I was in a playoff oh, wow. uh, with chip Beck and they turned around hoping that I'd win the playoff because they wanted to come could, you know, to celebrate, celebrate yeah. congratulate me. Yeah. And, you know, risk missing their flight and risk maybe that I wouldn't win the playoff. And, and thankfully I won the playoff in the first extra hole. Uh, they came back and we hung out and spent a little time again. And then they raced back to the airport and, and made their flight. But, um, I, I think Billy's win, you know, really spurred me on, uh, to, to kind of, I think really to kick my, my own butt in and, and get my act together. And Interesting. that, that, that really helped, uh, to have that and you know for for rhode islanders that was a great story to have the two of us win in similar years and uh, you know, i started playing much better golf yeah that was kind of the kickoff for what i would have said the best part of my career the the early 90s 91 through maybe 2005 is when yeah. i played my best golf you um you you mentioned you know one of the best shots you hit was in Q school and then you know some of the best rounds you played obviously getting onto the PGA tour but I'm guessing the best round of your life if you had to pick I I'm assuming the 63 and the 95 PGA at Riviera has to be right up there no doubt uh I I think that the best thing a golfer could do is play an important round well under pressure when they know they have to do it right and that was the final event for the PGA at the PGA at Riviera was the final event for the qualifying points for the, the Ryder cup. And there had never been a player selected to make a Ryder cup team prior to that, that hadn't played Ryder cup before. So I knew uh, that if I didn't qualify, I wasn't going to get picked by Lanny Watkins, a captain. And I wouldn't know, you know, nothing against Lanny for that. It was just the way it was. And and all the captains, yeah. Right, and all the captains up to that time, maybe mistaken on this, but I think it was right, had been PGA champions, not just major champions. Right. So Lanny had won the PGA championship, and uh, you know I was in 15th to 20th place starting that final round. I, I knew I had played, been playing well. I just hadn't made a lot of putts, and it was a, uh, a tournament where 
the scores were low, the conditions were ideal, except for the conditions of the greens. They had been um, renovated by Cork Crenshaw, and the grass hadn't taken, but the weather was perfect. It was sunny, it was warm, it wasn't a tremendous amount of rough, and it was a packed leaderboard with LT Tended Hells, um, Montgomery. It, it, was, it was a great field, and uh, I got off to you know one of the most incredible starts you could ever ask for by Eagle in the par five first, and then made seems like birdie every hole. I birdie, you know, three, five, six, seven. I missed a short putt for birdie on eight, like a seven or eight footer, and then birdied number nine to shoot a twenty-eight. And I know that that had done been done once before, and you have to go back into the twenties. Be a good trivia question for the listeners to to figure out who that other person is that shot twenty-eight, but. Um, I don't know if it, that record will ever be broken in a major championship. Do you think anybody will ever shoot 27? Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that's that's a tough I mean, you know, you never say never. Look at Grace. Brandon Grace shot 62 in the British Open, so you get close to it. But you got to have ideal conditions. But if, if a, when there's the lowest bars you're seeing are 35s, um, to shoot 27, that's eight birdies out of nine holes. That's pretty difficult in majors. Yeah. No, I, I, that round was, I mean, I, I remember that round. I'm, I'm not as well as you do, but I remember the fact that it, it was, a, I remember watching the broadcast back in 95 where it was just like, this guy is doing this, you know, he's probably not going to win. I mean, he got close, but I, he's probably not going to win, but he knows that if he shoots, if he top fives it, he's going to be on that Ryder Cup team. And, um, and yeah, and then you get on and you're a rookie on Ryder Cup. This is Oak Hill. And obviously you're, you're a rookie on that team. And, uh, you know, I actually, you know, on open it up to, you mentioned listers. I opened it up to some questions to some listers. Cause I was saying, Hey, I'm talking to a two-time Ryder cupper today. And what questions do you have? And uh, a couple of them were, what was the most nerve wracking or what's more nerve wracking for you? Your first tee shot of the rider at the Ryder cup, or maybe your first tee shot playing in the masters. It was 100% the Ryder cup, but, for a different reason than you'd expect. Okay. We were, uh, the Ryder Cup was in at Oak Hill and Rochester in late fall, in September, late September. And, you know, cool mornings, and but ideal conditions, and, and a great city to have the Ryder Cup. You know, there was no real major sports there, so it was packed, and Oak Hill had great history. And we, we all, both teams played um, Monday of tournament week. The tournament didn't start till Friday, playing practice rounds with no crowds. The crowds weren't let in until Tuesday. So we went around, and um, Tuesday, Monday night, Lanny says, hey, look, I'm going to put your your group out first, Brad. It's going to be you, Corey Pavin, Peter Jacobson, and Lauren Robertson. And Peter and I were going to be a potential four-ball partnership, and Lauren and Corey were going to be a potential foursomes partnership. So we get out to the practice tee um that morning and it's packed with <laughs> spectators and you know they had ropes and you know railings to be behind but we couldn't believe how big the crowds were after having played the day before with nobody there so when it was our turn to walk to the first tee for the nine o'clock start it was probably a 200 yard walk from the practice tee to the first tee and there was like a gauntlet and you know, people dressed in red, white, and blue, holding American flags down in the USA. 
You're and like, we had never seen that. And we're like, like oh, holy this smokes. Is, yeah, this is right. And autographs. Yeah. Um, and it was exciting. And we, very, you know, we were appreciative. We were nervous. And we're like laughing. And arms are up in the air. And then we kind of turn this corner and walk up the steps to the first tee. And we get up there. And I was the first one on the tee. And standing there, Wait next to each other, waving American flags were Byron Nelson and, and George Herbert Walker Bush. Hello. <laughs> I was like, oh my, you know, how often do you see that? Never. And how often do you see them waving flags? And they're like, come on, guys, represent your country well. And shaking our hands. And <laughs> oh, we're like, oh my. And then, you know, Bush was a couple years out of office then. And this voice of God just came over the loudspeaker and says, next to play representing the United States of America. Will you please give a big welcome for Brad Faxon? And I had no idea I was going to be the first guy to hit. And how, how great, how great would it be if Willie Wood was there and you can go, Willie, you're going to need to hit this for me. That, uh, no, I never even thought about that. But Damn. Oh, I, okay. I, what I was thinking about, which made it even more nerve wracking was, um, we had a joke going on in the locker room that if anybody was playing poorly, they would become the man in the envelope and uh-huh. you know, go- golfers would probably know what that envelope means. But at the Ryder cup, if uh, in singles matches, if anybody on one team is hurt, uh, the opposing captain has to put a player in the envelope who might not be playing the best or would actually be the worst player on the team that week. Right. And he would have to be, um, and that match would have to be considered a draw, and you you wouldn't play that day if if somebody got hurt. So you never wanted to be the man in the envelope. Right. And we had this sort of acronym for MITE, man in the envelope. MIT. Yeah. So all I was thinking, my thought over the ball was, if I don't hit a good shot here, I'm going to be the man on the envelope. Um, I hope Lanny's not here because I don't want him to see this shot. And <laughs> the first hole in Oak Hill was a long par four, 440 yards. It was OB to the right. The wind was blowing to the right. Uh, you know, it was kind of dewy and wet. First swing, um, this thing draw. And I hit kind of a low hook that got in the air, and it looked like a pretty good shot to me. It ended up just in the left rough. And I thought, under the circumstances, it was the greatest shot ever hit in the history of the game. There you go. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. So, uh, we get down there and um, everybody hits and we're kind of laughing at how nervous we all were. And then we get down to the fairway. All four balls are like in the fairway next to each other. Oh, like, you know, nice. within five yards. Uh, yeah, but Lanny Watkins kind of snuck <laughs> out of the rough and comes over there. And, you know, two of us hit the fairway, right, Lauren and Peter, and maybe Corey and I in the rough or somebody else. And Lanny says, don't worry about that, guys. You won't hit it in the rough in the tournament. And I'm like... <laughs> oh yeah, well, I, I, I always hit it in the rough. <laughs> and so now he, he he's standing there watching, and I had to take out a three iron back then, long hole, wet, um, downhill lie, um, creek, twenty yards, thirty yards short of the green. I'm like, oh my god, Danny's watching me hit a three iron off a downhill lie. This is harder than <laughs> the tee shot. Harder. So that was as nervous as I think I'd ever been in the game, and. You know, we were we were whispering might to each other, and it just was, oh, that's it great. was awful. Well, and, it, it, was, it was well. And the the crazy the thing is, is that you know, just to piggyback on what you're saying about the man in the envelope, you know, that just happened four years previously because Steve Pate was in the envelope, and Steve Pate didn't play because he was in that that limo accident on the way to a gala at the '91 Ryder Cup at Kiowa. So 
it's That's not exactly like, right. and it's not like something that, like I said, it's not like something that nobody has in mind. That just happened. So, um, that's funny that that thing. So uh, I wanted to throw another one. A buddy of mine, believe it or not, was on the U.S. Army golf team um, and was there at, at the Ryder Cup in 95. And uh, I, I pinged him really quick. I said, hey, I'm talking to I'm talking to Mr. Faxon. I said, uh, what do you want me to talk to him about? He's like, well, ask him if he remembers bringing the U.S. Army golf team into the clubhouse. Yes. Yes. Um, I don't remember which day it was. I, but, think, uh, I think he said it was actually it was either bef- during opening ceremonies or something like that. I think he said it was around the opening ceremonies. Yeah, so that would have been Thursday. Yeah, um, and, and you know the the week was back then. This was before any of the players started to uh, come vocal with you know the the PG of America maybe taking advantage of them or a few players uh, charitable that yeah, right, right. paid or compensation or something like that. And I was of the, you know, the opinion that I, I'd walk across the Atlantic ocean to play in this. That wasn't there yet, but there were, there were big nights. There were nights in front of the PG of America. There were nights with black ties, with thousands of people in the room, you know, one of the big galas and, and then the big opening ceremonies, and it was a mental drain too, you know, because we were trying to, you know, get ready and prepare ourselves to play, not knowing what most of this stuff was like, you know, going to a Ryder Cup. You know, PGA Tour players, I'm assuming you're creatures of habit. You travel the way you want to travel. You you room where you want to room. You're with different people that you you know I you know like like for example, you and Andre. I'm sure you guys traveled a lot together. But now you got you know. 11 other guys and you have this schedule that you're being that's being put in front of you i'm sure there are guys that just were not handling that well because they're out of their comfort zone right most players aren't eating with other players and other families uh, members you know we had a big team room that had well the chance for all 24 players and their wives or significant others and their you know the the pga members so back then there there were the secretaries the vice presidents um they were all welcomed into that room they were all um with their wives and so it was a little bit different than i thought it would be right it wasn't just players i think that team room has become much more just players yeah what'd you do with all the gear you got whether 95 or 97 of valderrama do you did you keep any of that stuff or did that all go to charity charitable causes or no i i actually um, kept a lot of it for a long time because the pants that we had were, um, you know, very nice wool, uh, slack that, you know, it was something you would have worn at other times with other coats. So I kept the pants. I gave the shirts to my dad and some of my friends because they weren't with the same company that I was using, but the, the slacks were Hickey Freeman or Corbin and, Back then, that was as expensive a pair of pants as I had. <laughs> nice. And yeah, the, um, and and the shirts had logos. I ha- I still have a few of the hats, and they were those big, you know, retro hat now. Yeah. You know, big brim, straight um, hat that it seems like all the young guys look cool in now. <laughs> you know, it had your name on the back of the hat. Yeah. It had the logo from the Ryder Cup team. I I thought they were cool. Yeah. Uh, and now, uh, I think that you know so many players have equipment and apparel contracts that a lot of them don't keep the 
the team stuff anymore, but they certainly have kept over the past some of the nicer sports coats and stuff like that if it doesn't have a lot of logoing on it. You're uh, you mentioning your uh, you know equipment or or clothing companies, and you know I think you know obviously PGA Tour players have such a strong tie to their brands and. You know, I guess when I think of players that with really strong ties, you know, if I saw Jordan Spieth wearing something other than Under Armour, it would be it would very it would look off. And especially, you know, Tiger wearing something other than Nike. I don't think there's a picture of you that exists without you wearing a Titleist visor or a hat on it. When did your relationship with Titleist begin? 1973. When I was 12 <laughs> years old. <laughs> okay, okay. Was, maybe something yeah. a little more official than that. But I, I understand what you're saying. But I grew up in, like I said, in Barrington, Rhode Island. The headquarters for Titleist were right down the street uh, in, in Fair, Fairhaven, Massachusetts, a half an hour away. So our town and our club were, you know, a haven for the, you know, kind of the C-suite level Titleist um, execs. And they, a lot of them lived in their town. If they had kids, we had a good good school system, and it wasn't a bad drive to the offices. So. Um, Everybody, including the golf professionals at the club, were Titleist staff. I don't think they sold another brand in the in the pro shop, and maybe they still don't. Um, and in the history at Rhode Island Country Club, 100 plus years old, there's only been four golf professionals there. So I learned a lot about loyalty as a 12, 13 year old when I was down the range plucking golf balls that were Titleist, um, seeing a, a Titleist filled pro shop, and and one of the you know, the first guys that was vice chair of the cl- company, a guy named Ed Abrain, who was in the golf business for seemingly forever, he handed me a, a sleeve of um, a prototype Titleist DT. Oh yeah. And you know, you know, I was 15 and starting to be a pretty good player, maybe 14 or 15, when I got this white box. And you know, when you were a kid and you got new golf balls, that was a treat. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, you know, if you were playing high school golf back in Barrington, Rhode Island, when I was a kid, you'd get a sleeve of balls um, for the day, and after you played with them, the coach would take them back and use them again the next week. Ooh. So, yeah, so um, we didn't have big budgets. So when I got this sleeve from Eddie Abrain, he says, hey, I want you to practice with this ball and tell me what you think. How does it feel? Um, give me some feedback. And I went out by myself one of those days, carrying my own bag, playing, and um, I'm going to try out this Titleist DT. I was so excited. In the second hole, I, I topped my drive. I had a Walter Hagen persimmon driver that I had just gotten, and I topped it into this creek on the second hole. Oh, no. Uh, this brand-new DT, and nobody was around to see it. I was in tears looking for this ball, and it was a, kind of a muddy creek. You never would have found this ball. I spent an hour and a half looking for it, never found it. <laughs> you know, ended up playing, you know, six holes that day using that, deep tees and a couple other balls and um got the uh i got to see the um the um exec the next week he goes how do you like those dts i go they were great he goes i'd like to get them back from you oh no (laughs) oh no no. i said oh can i use them a little bit longer i want to get you know give you some more feedback yeah let me keep them but uh that was very embarrassing oh wow I know a guy that, that you have a great relationship with comes to Titleist in 95. Um, we could probably fill up an entire episode about the most famous putters in history, whether it's the old Kushnet bullseyes or the, you know, the Wilson 8802 ping Anzer. And, uh, but you know, 
could probably make an argument that the the you know the Cameron, you know, Scotty Cameron's empire, so to speak, is at the top of that list. Do you remember when like the light bulb went off for him or even for you that okay, this is not just going to be a, a simple putter. This is going to turn into something just that's really just going to take over. I guess the way I guess putters are looked at in 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 the industry. It kind of evolved in between '95 and '97. Wally Uline, who was the head of the company back then, yeah. um, ha- had a vision unlike anybody else to to um, you know to come at equipment. You know, the golf ball was the money maker um, in the brand, but he also knew that he wanted to capture um, with names like. Cameron and, and or Scotty as he's known or, or Vokey and that this would be an important part to building the brand of Titleist and to, to build the best you know equipment category so obviously putters was a, a big part of that wedges became a big part of that afterwards uh, and now if you look at Titleist they're leading the tour in the woods and the irons and hybrids and uh, just fairway metal clubs so when, when Scotty got there I think one one of the first things that happened was he had his own putter studio, and it was kind of in a, a kind of a nice garage. But um, Scotty had been making putters for um, Mizuno, yep. and he had made putters on his own, and kind of the style of a TP Mills, where they were custom made, the gunmetal. Um, and he was also a, a great imitator. And, and the patent rights—I didn't know this—the patent rights for the the models of putters. Uh, expired after I believe 17 years. So if you were a maker of putters, you could, um, you know, try and copy or imitate the great brands. And everybody knows the Ping Answer was the most popular putter, and, and a lot of those heel toe weighted putters that uh, were replacing the blades um, were becoming the style. And, and Scotty did a good job immediately trying to take some of the players that were on the title of staff that had used other putters, and mine in particular was the. The Ping My Day, right. um, which was which was the Zing head with the answer hosel, and I said to him, Scotty, you know, it's going to be hard for me to change this putter, um, but let's see what we can do. How close can we can't come to making something that looks like what I use? And you know, he was using a different material. He was using a milled stainless steel um, compared to Titleist. Um, well, he, he used different metals, uh, be it beryllium, be it copper, be it bronze, uh, in, all in his putters. And so the sound was different, the shafts were different, uh, the process was different. And But he was very patient, and he understood. I think we were both learning, you know, that he, he wanted to hear comments and feedback from the players, and I think that's what Titleist has done so well, is they, they've always allowed their players to become part of their R&D team um, with whatever equipment it was. And it was the first time I had seen slow motion capture of my stroke, uh, what the ball does when it leaves the face, and how that can change with lies, lofts, uh, heads, and chaffs. So, you know, I became a student again while I was trying to have someone make me a putter that would be as good as the one that I was using. Right and feel like and look like and sound like um so it took about a year a year and a half for me to get a putter and i still have it's it's kind of cool to see them that you know the first prototype he ever made to me and then the second prototype and then the backup putters um and then he made a replica inspired by putter that you know sold out so you know i i give scotty 
as much credit for my improvement in my putting as, as anybody in the world because I hadn't seen my stroke in slow motion until 1995 or six. Uh, and when I saw that, you know, I adjusted my stroke and at that time I was 34 years old, 35 years old and, you know, well into my prime of my career and I improved my putting. I, I became, I mean, if you looked at statistics in those years, um, I went from being a very, very good putter to like one of the best over a, a long stretch as I got older. And, and I think that's encouraging to, to players as they get out on the tour and try and get better as you can get better as you get older. Where We've always thought this game is, oh, it's a, it's a game of nerves. Yeah, nerves get frayed and you lose it and yeah. you can't get it back. And, uh, yeah. I, I proved that. <laughs> uh, that concept wasn't necessarily true. Yeah. Um, I, I spoke uh, on a previous episode to Ryan Chrysler, who, uh, you know, he's at the Floridian now uh, teaching there, but he was in Austin, Texas, and he spent a lot of time around Crenshaw. And uh, he said the majority of his practice time was uh, on the putting green. And, you know, I guess if you take a step back, you're like, okay, of course that makes sense. He's one of the most graceful putters of all time. You know, and I'm, but I'm guessing people would think that Ben Crenshaw just rolls out of bed and that putting stroke is just, it's just waiting for him. And you have a, a very similar reputation as one of the best putters of all time. And I'm assuming that people think that about you as well, that that stroke's just there just whenever you need it. And I guess for maybe for the casual golf fan during the prime of your career, that, that 34, 35, that, you know, the 80s you know, to the early 2000s, what were your practice sessions like on the putting green? How did you work at, at keeping that stroke? Well, like, you know, many different parts of the game over the, the years, and, and that was, you know, 25 years ago, uh, things have changed so much with technology. Uh, putting gadgets, putting devices, putting technologies have, have all changed. So we, we had the most complicated um, you know, putting aid that we had was maybe a chalk line okay. um, to putt on and or a, a fields or tips. And we, there were a lot more players putt, having putting contests. Um, and there was, you know, not as many players looking at video of your stroke. And, you know, we played more games and, you know, we, we, we could hit, you know, try, I remember standing in one spot trying to hit 103 foot putts in a row, or, or trying to hit 100 putts around the clock. Like, remember seeing Phil Mickelson do that with Dave yeah, Pell. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, there wasn't um, the myriad of devices like you see players out there with gates and strings and uh, tees to hit balls yeah, through. Mirrors, and, yeah, yeah, the mirrors, um, and all those things help with. We're working on particularly particular fundamentals, but you know, as I become and morphed into a little bit of a putting coach, I would say I, I think those things are good and they're good to a point. But you've got to learn. Like I, I, I'm a big believer, and I've told Scotty this. I said all your, you know, you're you're doing all your filming inside on a perfect surface indoors where there's no elements. I want I want to see my players outdoors. I want to see them on the green. I want to see them with wind and shadows. Uh, in grains and, and see how they, they do then because that's where it is on the course. And I, I think there's, you know, you have your different types of practices that you'll do, but the thing I think I've been helping players with the most is, is how to take how they practice to the golf course um, and how to think when you're 
on the course rather than becoming a, a technical robot, which sometimes seems to hurt players where they lose their touches and their feels. Yeah, um, I'm going to have to stop you there. Um, if you say you're somewhat of a putting coach and you're working with Rory McIlroy and Gary Woodland, <laughs> I think we're going to have to call bullshit on that, Brad, and say you are indeed a a renowned putting coach at this point. So, um, <laughs> how do you? I I I mean, I I know that there's a, a great story about hey, when you first started working with Rory, you asked him to hit some putts with a a sand wedge and with a five wood, and I guess just the purpose of that was to kind of get out of his own head and just develop more feel? Is that kind of the purpose of what that drill was for? Yeah, and I've done that with a lot of players. And, and look, I, I I haven't invented anything that I'm right. doing myself. You know, I've been around a lot of good players and a lot of good instructors and asked a lot of questions for a long time. But I, I and, and if, if I become this kind of teacher, look, all these teachers, they come and they go. You, you've seen... Stan Utley become very popular, and then he faded away. Not to stand, not because he lost his ability to teach, but just everybody kind of comes and goes. And Dave Stockton was the guy, Pels was the guy. Right. And I'm sure at some point I'll be the guy they used to go see. But I, I haven't talked to a, a player that's come to see me that says, you know what, I need more to think about. I need more time over the ball, and I putt better in tournaments than I do in when I'm just messing around at home. Nobody ever says that. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really how do you get players to to practice better in competition? Um, and, and I think that's where I've had my success because I did, and I got better as I got older. And I think I was in tune to what other players talked about um, and thought about. So, you know, when Rory was struggling with his putter, um, you know, he, he was thinking a lot about his technique and his stroke, and his technique had probably improved, but he wasn't allowing that technique to work. And he 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 was I, – I watched him as he set up over a putt, trying to – like he had the mirror in front of him while he was putting, like he was checking out alignment and face alignment and how his feet and how his hips and his, you know, legs looked. And, and I believe that – the play, I believe in the player way more than I believe in any technique, right? I think it, these, these top players are so good um, that a lot of times they don't get enough credit for that. So it, it's really so individualistic, too, um, how you talk to a person. And I've had other players that that really their strokes haven't been as good and there's been more technical changes. And I, if you talk to a Brandon Grace who, who had uh, – a, a lot of strange things going on in his stroke. He would admit it. He held on to it in a funny way. Um, he, he had horrible putting stats. And he went out, you know, and I, I think I'm as proud of the work I've, I've done with Brandon as, and he's worked as hard as anybody at, at changing stuff in his stroke and his routine. Uh, and he won the South African Open after a, a, a lull of about a year. So um, that, that feels pretty good. And, you know, so now I, um, I have more people calling. I have less time to do the stuff than I like. But it's I, I always love talking to the best players in the world at in their position, in their with their club, whether it was Payne Stewart with a long iron, or Greg Norman with a driver, or Ben Crenshaw with a putter. Right. You know, Chad Nicholas or or Tom Watson hitting high a high ball. I always ask these guys questions. I was probably pestered them to like, <laughs> I wish this kid would get the heck out of here. You know. 
Yeah, well, but you have to you have to do that to learn from the best. You got to surround yourself. You, I mean, you got to surround yourself with the best. I want to get you out of here, but I just want to say a couple other things before we get to a really quick segment at the end. I cannot let you off the phone without asking you about the Fred Meyer challenge. Now, some people may know what this is, but this was a charitable or it was a, a two-man event that was in Portland area that Peter Jacobson started. And this was one of the very rare events where the PJ Tour players would get together and play this two-man event. All the all the stars were there: Nicholas and Palmer and Player and Trevino, and just all these guys were there. I mean, even as, you know, John Daly was there, and and Payne Stewart. Everyone was there, and you won it, uh, I believe, five times, three times with Norman, nice pick, and uh, two times I think with Android. And this seemed like so much fun for a PJ Tour player. I mean, that seemed like like going away to camp almost. Right. Well, first of all, Peter Jacobson came up with this idea. I mean, a guy with unbelievable spirit uh, and creativity, uh, you know, from his hometown at a big grocery store. They had a lot of customers. Uh, Peter was close to Arnold, so you get Arnold anywhere, especially back then when we were playing the yeah. early 90s. Uh, that made it popular. Uh, team events made it popular. Uh, and... I, I got paired early on. I might have played with Rick Fair the first year. He was a good player from Seattle, and it was, and it was a Walker Cup team. And then I got paired with Norman. And uh, Norman was a catch for um, for Peter. And I had become friendly with Greg because I was starting to play some golf in Australia. Uh, and Greg kind of helped me to get in a couple of the events down there. We had lived in Orlando together and then you know started playing some practice rounds. So I think I kind of helped get Greg to go there. And then we won the event, and Greg probably didn't want to come back and do that stuff because he didn't do that stuff, and he was number one in the world. And then we won again. Got to come back and defend. Got to come back and defend. Yeah, so, which I liked. And then um, I remember getting – it was one of the first times I'd flown private in my life, and Greg had his own plane, and uh, <laughs> his, his pilot uh, went over Mount Hood, and, um, you know, we were just – it was so fun. And then I, Greg was an intimidating guy to, to play with. And, and I, I remember when, you know, he didn't really talk to me a lot about what I should be doing strategy wise on the course until the, uh, the second round the first year. And we were close to the lead at the 16th hole was maybe the 17th hole was a par five, uh, very reachable, a dog leg to the right. And the flag stick was tucked left where there's a little Creek. And we had both driven it nicely. I was the first guy to hit and I had a four or five iron out. And, um, and I like to draw the ball and I was going to hit this at the middle of the green and hopefully let it draw towards the flag. And Greg walks over to me and goes, Hey, what are you thinking here? And I was literally in my routine. Oh, God. He hadn't said anything like this to me. And I go, what am I thinking here? I'm like, well, I'm thinking I'm going to aim this at the middle of the green and draw it. He goes, well, make sure you keep it out to the right so I can go at the flag. It was the first time he'd really ever said anything. Right. Um, and I pushed this thing so much to the right. It was in the bushes. And um, and he went at the green anyway, at the flag stick anyway, and pulled to hit the rocks. And, you know, I think we struggled and somehow made a par on a hole that everybody was making a three or a four on. Right. And somehow I made a long putt uh, on the 18th hole to get us in the playoff and birdie the, the playoff hole. Um, so... <laughs> Greg intimidated the shit out of me, and <laughs> I I still remember that. And then you know a little redemption by making a long putt, but it was fun. And uh, 
we won it twice, and then I guess maybe the the greatest thing was, you know, Billy and I had our great stretch, and Arnold had um, been very nice to, to both Billy and I, especially since Billy went to Wake Forest on the Arnold Palmer scholarship, and, and Arnold asked us one year if we wanted to fly back with him to Latrobe, and when he was going to make us dinner, we'd oh. stay at his house. Oh. Oh, it's just like the greatest thrill of our lifetime. And we won the tournament, so we had to go to the press room. We were the last ones to the airport. Arnold had his plane. He was waiting. You never make the guy that owns the plane oh. wait. And here we are showing up. He has hands on hips as we drive in with his stern look on his face. <laughs> I am so, so nervous. And he gets out and he goes, you know, you're making me wait. And then he kind of laughed and he goes, congratulations, way to go. And we were like, we, we couldn't even breathe. Oh. So we're so excited. We're in, you know, the, the first citation 10 ever made. The uh, tail number was AP1. Of course. And we, have, we, we take off Arnold's in the left chair. Um, and we get up there and, and something wasn't right in the cockpit. There was a little bit of conversation. And uh, I think Doc Giffen, was, who was his press guy, yeah, was there. Yeah in the plane with us and we're like, something's going on. And Arnold comes back and he says, Hey, there's a light on, uh, there was a warning light that, uh, there was something going on with our landing gear and we're not sure it's in the right position. We got to take a detour to Wichita, which was the home of Citation Jet or Cessna Jet. And, um, we're like, Oh no. So we get there, we had to land and, um, the head of, uh, Cessna Aviation was Russ Meyer. It was another Augusta national member and friends with Arnold and, Red carpet rolls out. We get off the plane. They go, get the mechanic gets out there. And this is one of those things that we thought would be maybe a light bulb needed to be put in. And we, I see Arnold shaking his head. And um, <laughs> Arnold walks over to me and Billy. He goes, do you guys like vodka? And I'm like, what? He goes, we're stuck here overnight, fellas. Sorry. Um, oh, wow. And I, I wasn't a vodka drinker. I, I, I would have a beer, and, uh -huh. and I think that he, he had a big deal with Kettle One. Right, right. And, uh, and I think that was the first vodka I ever had in my life, and we had we stayed in some Holiday Inn in Wichita, Kansas, instead of in Latrobe. Oh, my gosh. And Billy, Billy and I got up in the next morning from Wichita, and they, they flew us to, um, I think they flew us to Winston-Salem because they had a private plane going there, and they said, you can make your way home from here. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of staying with Winnie and, and getting to be the whole night with Arnold, we ended up in, in Winston-Salem. I, I, uh, I wish I would have seen the look on the guy's face at the Holiday Inn front desk if you two guys rolled in uh, and, and oh, with, with Arnold Palmer. With um, Arnold Palmer, yeah. Oh, what a great story. Um, all right, well, I'll get you out of here. You are a traditionalist. It's well-known. Um, I, I thought I'd ask you these questions to see if I can get any sort of reaction. Um, have you ever played a round of golf with a long putter? A round of golf? With a long putter. That's the dumbest, dumbest question I ever asked. No. Okay. All right. No, I got some more dumb ones. Hold on. Uh, I've hit a putt with a long putter, but uh, never played a round no, of golf. Yeah, I couldn't do that. Okay. So, uh, yellow golf ball, yes or no? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, cross-handed. you ever gone cross-handed at all in your life? Uh, on a practice screen. Okay. Music in the golf cart in a casual round. Um, almost a hundred percent of the time now. Okay. Really? Okay. And yeah, uh, and actually, I would even go back far. One of the guys I used to practice with a lot in the early '90s when I lived in Orlando, late '80s, early '90s, was Payne Stewart, and he used to have one of those traditional boom boxes. Uh huh. And he would take it out to the range, and we would hit balls to music. And boy, do I think that's a good thing for players' golf games. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. 
finally, do you consider yourself, this is just a wrap up, I'm curious about this, do you consider yourself an overachiever or an underachiever? <laughs> I, I think that I, I've been asked that and I've asked players that question. I think you'd always want to think of yourself as an underachiever and have people tell you you're an overachiever. Right. Um, but I, I think, you know, as you get older and have more experience, maybe your raw skill goes away a little bit. Um, I, I wish that I had the mental capabilities at, at 22 to 30 that I had from, you know, 35 to 40. And, you know, Jack used to say that, oh, I'm a smarter player now. And you'd go, well, what does that mean? And, and Tiger's doing that now. So, you know, you have more experience to fall back on. So I, I would say I was uh, probably a little bit of an underachiever, but if you called me an overachiever, I think that's a compliment too. There you go. Uh, well, Brad, I, I greatly appreciate this. This was a lot of fun. I know we left a lot on the table and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Um, stay safe and, uh, Stay, uh, you know, social distancing and all that that fun stuff, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, we'll all be back on the golf course uh, as soon as possible. So, thanks for uh, thanks for joining me here at the back of the range. Ben, great talking to you. Uh, I love listening to you, and um, certainly, I'll think about you every time I'm on the back of the range. And there you have it. Special thanks to Brad Faxon for joining me on this episode. Don't forget, every single episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. We'll see you tomorrow for another episode here at the back of the range.